0: Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I am Stephen Coates. We're back again for another wander through the labyrinth that is the counterculture. But what is counterculture? When did it begin? I think in London we often consider it to have begun in the 50s, maybe stretching through the 60s and 70s into the 80s and maybe the 90s. But in a way, whenever there's been a culture, there's been a counterculture. So perhaps it began a lot earlier than we imagine. In today's episode, we're going to take a wander through the depths of the labyrinth, back in time to the earlier part of the 20th century, to meet a particular character. One of the lesser-known members of that sect of beings Peter Aykroyd called the Cockney Visionaries. It included people like William Blake, Milton, Charles Dickens, maybe T.S. Eliot, Dr. D., Austin Osmond-Spare, and various others. His name was Arthur Macken, not a Cockney by birth, somebody who arrived in London, but made the city his own by wandering its streets and perceiving there all sorts of mysteries. A writer, a thinker, perhaps even a mystic in some ways, somebody who's influenced the counterculture, a great influencer of people like H.P. Lovecraft and... Alan Moore, the mage and writer of so many wonderful graphic novels, and also Ian Sinclair and Aykroyd himself, the psychogeographers. And to meet with Arthur Macken and hear all about him and his London life and the London Labyrinth. Our guest today is Robert Kingham, one half of Perambulators and Psychogeographers Minimum Labyrinth. Welcome, Robert. Hello. Hello. Robert, before we start. Let's start with you, shall we? Before we dig into the uh, the mysterious labyrinthine world of Arthur Mackin, um, Minimum Labyrinth, tell us what that is.
1: So, Minimum Labyrinth, oh, it is. It is. I'm half of Minimum Labyrinth. Um, it is myself and uh, Dr. Rich Cochran, who I had the pleasure of going to university with, and we we discovered we had we had interests in common. We, we stayed in touch, and since then we've we've done quite a few creative things over the years starting about 10 years ago and there've been walks there've been books there've been audio books um there's been music which is which is a a musician and um they've all really been lots of different sort of types of media but I guess the, the the sort of golden thread running through them all is we're interested in odd things weird things paranormal things and but it's not for the sake of it it's kind of asking why do it's not whether this is is this true or not it's asking why do people find this interesting what does this tell us about them and and about humanity's search for the unreal
0: well so you're kind of a 40 and a skeptic something like that maybe
1: i think so yes mm. 14 is a good word to describe mm. a lot of the stuff we do but it's as i say it's not um It's not exploring the the sort of weird and the mystical and the offbeat for the sake of it. I think there's a sort of, I'm I'm fascinated by uh, humanity's yearning for that side of life. And um, it starts to sort of branch out into all kinds of things on spirituality, religion, philosophy, history, and um, it leads you in all sorts of interesting directions.
0: Well, also, the thing is, I mean, the reason we know each other is because a lot of it, a lot of what you've done anyway, is also quite connected with the city, isn't it? With London
1: yes absolutely i'm a londoner um uh, rich is a scouser but uh, he now lives in london so um we've um, explored many of the the, the off the beaten paths together and it's it's interesting to tie those things together i mean it, london is infinite and you can find anything on the streets um any stories you can draw a sort of square meter around any part of london and, and it sort of teams with infinite stories mm. And yes, those those sort of those those themes are often what I found when when exploring them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I you know I've been involved with some of the things you've done. I describe you as a psychogeographic perambulator. How's that? Thank you.
1: Yes, I mean I go with I go with the Jonathan Mead's uh, definition of uh, a psychogeographer, which is a geographer who has neglected to take his medication, so um, I'll, <laughs> I'll go with that. <laughs> excellent. Perambulator, yes.
0: A uh, Perambulator, for, <laughs> for sure, yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, we're going to dig into Arthur Mackin, but actually, you know, as I was saying earlier, it's why, you know, why talk about Mackin in the context of counterculture? So I had this idea, which is that we, th- when we think about the counterculture, we tend to think about maybe late 50s through to early 80s. It sort of seemed to be this little window In, um, you know, British or world Western culture, you know, centered on certain things, certain certain things in London, certain bits of music and lifestyle and politics and stuff like that. But in fact, the reason that I think Macken's uh, a good subject for this show and in terms of talking about counterculture is because, of course, there's always been a counterculture. There's always been a counterculture whenever there's been a culture. It's a bit like we talk about the underground—not um, the London underground, but the underground as in the alternative society or whatever. And of course, there's always been an underground. Uh, you know, the underground didn't die out at the end of the '70s or in the, the '60s or whatever. D- Danny, the drug dealer, said in uh, With Neil and I, you know, it's still there. It may not be on King's Road. It may not be in Soho. It may not be in uh, Notting Hill, Labrick Grove, as it was. It maybe it's in a tower block, you know, in South East London or something. There's always an underground going on. and I think there was a counterculture, and of course, for me, Macken, in a way, uh, uh, you know, as you've pointed out in this your studies of him, he was always in some way countercultural, and of course, he as influenced as you've pointed out various aspects of the counterculture. But let's begin with him. Just tell us who he was. I mean, he's not a well-known figure anymore. Maybe he never was. I'm not quite sure about his status in the past. But give us a sort of introductory bio to the creature called Arthur Macken, Robert.
1: I I will, and it's interesting that you're talking about the counterculture, because I don't think that he would have wanted to be part of a, He didn't set out to be part of any counterculture. I think he would have been very, very much happier in his life had he been sort of mainstream and successful (laughs) as some of his contemporaries. Um, But he has, you're quite right, nevertheless been sort of adopted and uh, sort of celebrated in that counterculture. So Arthur Macken, for those who have never heard of him, um, he was born Arthur Clewellyn Jones in 1863. Um, in Gwent, or what he calls that noble, fallen Caleon on Usk. And he, he there's one bit where he, he writes, My eyes were first opened in earliest childhood. They had before them that vision of an enchanted land. And what I love is his heart is in Wales. He's a Welshman. But he 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 sort of takes his place in that pantheon of London mystics, of Cockney visionaries. I mean, I, I first came across him when um, I read Peter Ackroyd's magisterial um, London biography, and he talks about um, Mackin as being in the in the sort of um, in the tradition of Thomas de Quincey, William Blake, as being these sort of Cockney visionaries that um, see different things. in, on the streets of London, and it, I mean, he, he said he saw the eternal mysteries, the eternal beauty hidden beneath the crust of common and commonplace things, hidden and yet burning and glowing continually, if you care to look with purged eyes. So he's got this way of looking at London, I think, that that, and that's how I first sort of came across him and came across his, his stories.
0: So he was like many of us. I'm not a. You are a natural Londoner. I'm not, and I think probably I'm not sure what the proportion is. Probably about two thirds of people in London are are probably not born here. So he was an outsider, and interestingly, we can talk about him and Blake because Blake was very much a Londoner. But often it is outsiders who see London with those different eyes, isn't it? Absolutely.
1: And he was sort of torn between wales and and london and sort of in london he sort of lived in poverty trying to make it as a journalist and having absolutely no money he walked the streets and he he sort of um walked the streets endlessly and that sort of um that sense of london as this sort of um cold labyrinth but with potentially sort of hidden mysteries sort of comes through in his work and it's you know it's immensely appealing i think to anyone who's sort of um, similarly um, and that goes for many people in London haven't quite have the money to enjoy London in all its uh, luxuries and therefore have, have um, paced the streets and wandered around and just seen what's there and and that's an infinite pursuit. You can <laughs> carry on with that,
0: we—I mean, we—we sure we could right. dig into that. I mean, you're a perambulator. I'm a perambulator. I mean, of course, Dickens—a huge perambulator. You know those those epic uh, nighttime walks. I went through a kind of a uh, insomniac period a few years back when I was doing sort of some very long cross-city walks. Uh, at Ian Sinclair, of course. Um, Psychogeographer par excellence at the moment, you know he's he's a big fan of walking. There is something, isn't there, about walking, uh, pounding the streets, that is a kind of psychic process in itself, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think it's Macken trying to come to terms with the enormity of London and the um, the endlessness and you know the barbarism of it, the cold heartedness, equally the wonder of it, the glory of it, and. You know all the the sort you know what Charles Lamb sort of called the, you know the joy of the, uh, the the bustling joy of the Strand and all of the things that sort of moved him to tears. So all these sort of extremes of of joy and sorrow sort of seem to be um, encapsulated for him. And I think that that's that's the bit that touches a chord with me and sort of other people have I've met have have sort of reacted sim- in a similar way.
0: So he turns up, uh, not on a National Express coach, but on the kind of uh, the late 19th century equivalent of it uh, from uh, south-west Wales. And um, is it south-west Wales or north Wales? I'm not quite sure. Uh, yeah,
1: no, south-west Wales, yes, yeah. it's, um, it, it's Gwent. Um, so Gwent. it's a Caleon on us. It's a beautiful um, Roman village um, just north of Newport, uh, which is still it's absolutely beautiful and uh, and worth a visit there's a few sort of memorials to him there and um you can still get a sense of some of the sort of uh, beauty that he found there it's it's still very much there
0: so before we actually explore his work he made in london and the, wor- the the work he made of london um he arrives come to make his fortune like so many have before him or what's his what's his vision <coughs> in coming here
1: so he turns up he turns up in his sort of uh, well, let's see, it's the early, it's the sort of 1880s, so he's, you know, he's in his, um, in his early 20s, or he might be late teens, actually, trying to make it as a journalist, um, living in various bedsits, um, in, in various sort of places, such as Clark and well, um, having no money and trying to make it as a journalist. And it's sort of in the, it's in the 1880s and 1890s that he writes... His most famous works, uh, such as the Great God Pan, the Three Impostors, these sort of classic works of what you might call folk horror, um, which which defined him and um, brought him some fame, not as much fame or as much money as he would have liked, but certainly he had he had contemporary um, he had contemporary. Uh, um, I've lost thread thrivner he had, he had contemporary sort of uh, admirers um, but he never quite sort of um reached the peaks and it's only really it's only really sort of um i'd say after his death certainly i mean he's died in 1947 um and it's really really the 70s and 80s that there sort of there starts to be i think a um, a groundswell of appreciation for what he's done there was appreciation during his lifetime and even when he was in his 80s and and you know li- living Sort of fairly straightened means, um, a, a load of literary types had a had a bit of a, a jolly for him to raise some money so he could uh, li- live out the rest of his years in, in in relative comfort. So he was admired during his lifetime, but not as much as he would have liked.
0: Right, so a familiar story. I mean, I think that's quite <laughs> a common thread, isn't he? Can relate to that. <laughs> I, <don't know>. I <laughs> mean, um, it reminds me I, it, much later actually, but uh, and obviously a different, generally a different. Altogether, but it's something of the Austin Osmond spare about him, possibly too. I mean, uh, spare, the same the gifted youth, decrepit old age, and uh, kept alive by admirers. But um let, before we go on, because it's an interesting phrase, and I, I don't think it's a phrase that he would have recognized, but it's a f- current phrase, isn't it? Folk horror. Let's just talk about what that means
1: yes he wouldn't have used that phrase um but it, it seems to sum up a lot of what people find interesting about his his stories there are two things i think that people find interesting about his stories the folk horror but also the the outsider's view on london they are linked and um i i think they are sort of um they they aren't uh, separate but the folk horror is well it's it it comes out in his horror stories and it's his most obvious influences that he, he made. It he was a great influence on um, on H.P. Lovecraft. And then following that on the likes of Stephen King, Guillermo del Toro, Horgelis Borges. Um, but he's very different from Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft became more famous, I think. Um, Lovecraft gave us invisible, whistling, racist octopuses, uh, but Macken was fascinated by something different. He was fascinated by sinister ancient pre-Christian horrors, these sort of troglodyte races and malevolent forms that they just lurk beneath the surface of, of modern life. But I think they have a, there's a point to them, there's a theology behind them, they're not just monsters jumping out in a sort of Doctor Who fashion, they are i think um you know symbols of something deeper he's, he's sort of struggle with his own faith if you like and his sort of um his need to try and leap across um leap across the chasm into into a sort of world where uh, he achieved sort of religious happiness and awakening and but it's that fear of jumping i think it's that fear of committing yourself and and and, and jumping into the unknown and allowing this unknown world to catch you and that's that's i think what um characterizes his um uh his horror there's there are these sort of strange monsters that sort of appear but there's also this this yearning for this sort of um glowing world hidden under the ones that we the one that we recognize
0: do you think that was uh, this is going to sound like a very you know sort of kind of cliched, I suppose, in a way. But I was just wondering whether that was the Welshness in some way, because, um, you know, we still, I think, possibly wrongly, see Wales as the, you know, still more connected with kind of pagan Britain, you know, something more ancient, something more magical, um, obviously more pastoral as well. So was that the folk aspect of it and something, you know, something pagan that he brought with him? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And I think he was as you know as many others have done he was trying to tap into that sense of welshness and it's a kind of uh, it's not to demean it but it's it, it it is a kind of invented thing um i mean ronald hutton is excellent on this in sort of writing about the the origins of um, paganism and the idea of paganism certainly the, the great revival it had in the sort of seventeenth and eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. Um, you know, Wales is this great hub for this because I think tied up with you know the Welsh um, desire for national identity and that sort of defining that identity. Um, there were these ancient myths to draw on, so this whole this whole creation of Wales as this this sort of um, uh, Celtic twilight, mystical place, is, is a very active um, um, process, and certainly when when Macken is writing in the late nineteenth century, it's at its peak. You know, you've got this sort of Celtic movement going on. You've got um, you've got all kinds of other writers sort of um, entranced by fauns and fairies and um, th- this mystical world that seems to be so much more enjoyable than the real world.
0: You said that. Um... I mean you talked about his uh religion spirituality. I'm assuming he wasn't a kind of card carrying Welsh Methodist. He was um he was more... <laughs> No, he no absolutely not. He
1: him he um was a well, he, he in in later years he um very much espoused Catholicism. And he sort of he, he wrote I can't remember where he wrote it, but he did write, you know, later on that he felt actually um Catholicism was the, the you know the 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 right path and I think why he said that is because he was very much drawn to the ritual to the the mysticism um, involved in that the the ancientness of, of 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 you know what he saw as the ancientness of Catholicism the unbroken link um, is is what he sort of found most important and many of his stories um, are around. This unbroken link with something very ancient, whether it's Roman or pre-Roman, something very, very old, much older than the the, the the sort of the native population of Wales. There's something lurking in the hills, which is sort of exciting and positive, but also the same th- at the same time very dangerous, and it could kill you or send you mad. So it's this an uh, ambivalent relationship. But that's that's a th- that's where he ended up in saying, well, actually, Catholicism is the closest we've got to this ancient, lost, wonderful religion.
0: Ah, interesting. Well, have been brought up a Catholic, uh, I can definitely uh, agree with his the horror bit of folk horror, anyway, for sure. Um, so, <laughs> so he comes to uh, he comes to London. He's working as a journalist. You said he's got this portfolio career, as so many of us have. Yes. Uh, very so mod. He was very modern in that sense, wasn't he? So he's got his kind of you know bread and butter work. He's doing all uh, actor as well. I think he said he was as, for as well, but he's doing all that stuff to kind of uh, earn a crust. Not a very fresh crust, by the sounds of it. But um, he's getting by. But is he what he's spending his nights uh, perambulating and writing and deep deepening into the city? Is that what he's doing? Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: At the, at the, you know, in the in the eighties and nineties, he's um, he's wandering. He's absolutely wandering. And um, let's just see if I just I find a quotation. Here we go. Um. Yes, we also we 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 often find that this this creeps through into this autobiography. Let's start again. We often find that his experiences in walking the streets of London sort of surface as a sort of quasi autobiography in his stories. We find characters walking and walking until they've. They think they've reached the outskirts of the city, and there's a quote saying, "I'm free at last from this mighty and stony wilderness." And then suddenly, as I turned a corner, the raw red rows of houses would confront me, and I knew that I was still in the labyrinth. Um, there's a lov- there's another lovely quote from the the Hill of Dreams, and this I mean this is this is. Not an autobiography, but, but, but the sort of the central character of Lucian is, is very autobiographical, and this is wonderful. It, it sums up sort of what he's trying to what he what he's sort of feeling here. It was not until the winter was well advanced that he began to explore the region in which he lived. Sometimes eating his luncheon in odd corners in the bulging parlors of eighteenth-century taverns that still fronted the surging sea of modern streets, or perhaps in brand new publics on the broken borders of the brickfields, smelling of the clay. From from which they had swollen. He found waste by-places behind railway embankments where he could smoke his pipe sheltered from the wind. As he went farther afield a sense of immensity slowly grew upon him. It was as if from the little island of his room, that one friendly place, he pushed out into the grey unknown, into a city that for him was as uninhabited the
0: desert (laughs) amazing stuff the um uh you know you mentioned blake obviously the sort of you know another london perambulator and i don't know whether he was an influence on macken but you know what struck me there when you're reading that actually is is t.s elliot not a londoner obviously an american but there's something of the wasteland as well right? oh yes yeah absolutely
1: and um Yes, I, I, am sure someone's done their PhD on sort of whether they, whether they influence each other. But I, I completely agree. Sort of, I think T.S. Eliot conjures that. Well, you know, it's T.S. Eliot who invents the phrase "unreal London," and it's that, it's that unrealness that I think links um,
0: MacKen and and the Wasteland. Does um, Peter Ackroyd uh, count T.S. Eliot as one of his Cockney visionaries?
1: Do you know what he doesn't mention him in so much in the biography as one of those? But certainly, I mean he's written a biography of him, and it's you know, he's very much sort of, of of that piece as a as a canon of someone who's defined that sort of um mystery of London.
0: To uh, just connect back through this spirituality, this sort of deepening into the city, and this seeing the city as transformed. I mean, we all recognise bits of that, don't you, at times in our lives, you know. But um, I'm assuming that this was nothing to do with drugs because you mentioned De Quincey. I mean, De Quincey obviously very drug-fueled vision of the city. Uh, and there are some parallels, but uh, but was he was he a clean living chap, at Macken?
1: he was i don't think he i don't think he dabbled in drugs i'm 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 sure you've got letters from more more uh, dedicated biographers who can g- give detail but i don't think he was into drugs um he certainly never writes about it um i think he likes to drink now and then but um not not to any great extent um no i think he's um he's he's trying to experience this he's trying to sort of use what he's seeing to tap into his own sense of spirituality and i don't think he's sort of wanting to do that in a sort of uh Artificial way with any sort of uh, help for right. anything, anything stimulating.
0: Was he actually? Uh, I mean, what was his emotional life? The reason I mentioned that is, is that so if I think about my own personal relationship with the city, um, I certainly had a kind of a period of time with the nocturnal walk time, where you know, in the sort of in, uh, sort of trying to clamber out of the wreckage of a crushed romance. And in a sort of psychically vulnerable, fragile state, living in Clermont, well, interestingly as well. Um, uh, and it was it was something to do with one's inner state, which was in disarray, had been sort of you know they had been pulled down. And that kind of like that. My experience was that it sort of opened up this eye, you call it the third eye, maybe this eye of perception, so that certainly I remember at that time that the those descriptions of the city, you're walking through. Streets that seem loaded with meaning. You know, p- particular corners take on some symbolic significance. You know, the concrete itself becomes poetic. And uh, uh, and I don't know whether that's your your, your experience, but uh, was there something in his life, in his private life, or which was opening that eye of perception in that way?
1: I don't think it was anything driven by a relationship. I think it was more a sort of... A sense of loneliness he's a bit of a lo- well if you take him at face value through his writings he comes across as a bit of a loner um, he did marry um, his his first wife um, tragically died and that story was told very poignantly by Alan Moore um, in his, his um, graphic novel Snakes and Ladders and have um, am I, am I got that right let me check uh, <laughs> before I quote that Snakes and ladders, isn't it? Yes, it's snakes and ladders. Yeah, um, but uh, it, most, mostly, mostly the sense you get from his his walking is this sense of sort of being alone with himself. It, it's as if he's in the desert, finding himself in in some religious sense. Um, he, I think he 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 does describe. He does describe um, London as a desert. In that case, yeah. Well, I've just no. That was actually. Uh, I've already already mentioned that desert quote.
0: Yeah, so actually I love this quote which you've highlighted here, if I can just uh, read this, because he describes Piccadilly as his university. He says, There I began to study the great science which still occupies me, the science of the great city, the physiology of London, literally and metaphysically, the greatest subject that the mind of man can conceive. Yet I feel sometimes positively overwhelmed with the thought of the vastness and complexity of London. Paris, a man may get to understand thoroughly with a reasonable amount of study. London's always a mystery. In Paris, you may say, here live the actresses, here the bohemians, and the rates, whatever they are. But it's different, in London. You may point out a street, correctly enough, as the abode of washerwomen. But in that second floor, a man may be studying Chalde roots. And in the garret over the way, a forgotten artist is dying by inches. Absolutely amazing stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and isn't and, he, and he's right. I mean, I can't, I, I'm always wary of this, you know, London, completely unique city. Of course it's unique, but, you know, New York's unique, Bombay's unique, Calcutta's unique. It's unique in, you know, the way that, one of the ways that London is unique is just that. He's put his finger on it. You can get streets in the city, even now, even in the age of gentrification and redevelopment and property prices and all that stuff, you can get streets in London where you've got rich and poor you know, cheap by jowl, bohemians and whatever the opposite of a bohemian is, you know, and uh, all, all all mixed up together, you know, particularly in yeah. places like King's Cross and Clerkenwell and all that stuff. And that, that is one of the wonders of the city, is it not?
1: It is. And I think it takes it takes us right back to your first question about, well, you know, is Macken part of this counterculture? And I think that's a really interesting question because... I think with with Macken with studying Macken and you know the things that we do and and you know Peter Ackroyd does you've got to ask well is this radical or is this conservative and you could paint you know the act of psychogeography and, and and sort of digging down under the streets of London until you unearth all these stories you could characterize it as very conservative you know we're just we're just um, creating um wallpaper history for the next generation of yuppies who've sort of come into this um new uh, raised development which probably has a sort of vaguely historical tag to it and we're kind of manufacturing this this london history which helps to push up the the house prices that's one way of looking at it um and i think you've got to guard against that you've got to guard against this this history as a sort of um a ghost train I like to call it where you you're on it and you're exciting because you're looking at all these things that happened in the past and some of them terrifying and there's there's things like plague and 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 murder and um all sorts of oddities that go on and and and, um slops being thrown out the window but you're safe because you're (laughs) in the 21st century and you can get off at the end and everything's fine you don't have to think about it too much um i don't think that's the right way to go about history um what's more interesting i think is a way to engage with macken and Accra and all these all these things that these, these wonderful writers that are trying to engage with london and try to make sense of it and try to um understand it in a way that you can be a part of it and respond to it i mean a lot of people i think do get tired of london and don't quite get tired of life at the same time, move out and just, just find it overwhelming. I I don't think I will. I, I, I think I'll probably be here for quite a while. I can't, can't quite see myself moving out. Um, but to do that, to live in London, you've got to try and come to terms with it. And ignoring the cheek-by-jowl riches and poverty and ignoring the problems and ignoring all of the difficult history that it contains is is not a recipe and we, obviously we've seen recently that a lot of that history starts to burst up and um and cause a lot of trouble and upset the apple cart which is which is i think a very good thing um so it's important to use this to ask the right questions and not just to uh, not just to have it at the, as this sort of um this sort of dickensian theater where we're when we're sort of um wallowing around imagining the strand as it was in its heyday i think you've got to bring this right up to date and ask yourself how, you know, how we're interacting with London now, whether that's a good thing.
0: Absolutely. I mean the uh I suppose is it Jonathan Friedland to give you a definition of a psychogeographer as a geographer who's not on his Jonathan meds? Meads. Jonathan, Mead, sorry. Um but um I suppose in in the classic Peter Rackroyd way, uh, the psychogeography I suppose in a sense it's a metaphor an enriching metaphor for the city. That's how I understood it. And, uh, of course, the situationists didn't mean it that way at all, whoever it was, who came up with the phrase in the first place. But I, I think, actually, for a lot of people coming to London, particularly people who haven't got money, you know, who are struggling paying, to pay the rent, actually it's a really wonderful uh, way to experience the city because you it's free you can get out in the city and wander around there is something rather magical for a period of time anyway in discovering the hidden corners and you know in the the hidden rivers and the the you know the evocations of particular corner particular bits of the city and of course he does that amazingly um, for himself but also for his readers and and picking you know parts of the city that you wouldn't normally i mean Clarkenwell, of course you know in the recent years has become, you know, one of those maybe Dickensian places. But I mean he also picks Finsbury Park and Turnham Green. I mean they're not they're not at the top of Peter Rackroy's lists of places to hang out, are they?
1: No, but these they they are well, um they are they are at the top of Dickens's lists, actually. Um, and there's a lovely quote Um, from Macken's uh, one of Macken's autobiographies uh, The London Adventure uh, where he says I think it's easier to discern the secret beauty and wonder and mystery in humble and common things than in the splendid and noble and storied things Charles Dickens was touched to the heart and the quickening spirit not by Avignon and Rome and Genoa but by Camden town byways by the old inns of Southwark by dirty streets in Soho by the purlieus of the Grey's Inn Road, and that's how I came um, to sort of um, engage with Macken. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd done a, um, a stage show with with Rich called A Line um, at the Museum of London, and the museum were doing a series of walks around sort of urban myths, um, and they they invited me to sort of write a new walk, and I thought, actually I'd really like to explore this Arthur Macken character that keeps popping up in, in, in Ackroyd, wonder what he's all about. So I obviously dived into his sort of books and also started walking around Grayson Road and that sort of area um, where he he holds there to have been a sort of yeah, a, a mystical a mystical sense there's there's there's, one of the first things you you sort of you should read um if you if you want to dip your toe into macken is there's a wonderful short story called n which actually he wrote towards the end of his life is in the 1930s when he wrote this but it's this short story extraordinary story about hidden landscapes um revealing itself revealing uh, it's about hidden landscapes revealing themselves to those that have eyes to see And this wonderful description where he's got three antiquarians, these these three old guys sipping punch round the roaring fire. And between the third and fourth filling, the talk drew away from central London and the lost beloved Strand and began to go farther afield into stranger, less known territories. Dodging by the globe and the Olympic theatres into the dark labyrinth of Clare Market, under arches and by alleys, Great Queen Street, the Freemasons' Tavern and Inigo Jones's Red pilasters. they finally reached... Theobald's Road. There they delayed a little to consider curiously decorated leaden water cisterns, and thence northward and eastward, up the Gray's Inn Road, crossing the King's Cross Road and going up the hill. And here, said Arnold, one of the characters, we begin to touch on the conjectured. We have left the known world behind us. So I walk these streets, it's wonderful, I walk these streets, and, and, and they do have this this mystery to them there's there's no there's no getting out of it these these sort of suburbs of London have got this power and this 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 unknownness to them
0: well I mean that's very close to my heart because I lived there so um you know my I lived uh, in just off Inn road He mentions Mount Pleasant actually just there on the corner oh, down right. the corner so where were, where were, you? were I, you I, I you? lived in Cavendish Toppersons. mansions which is uh, uh, the uh, opposite grazing buildings um Fantastic. you know the, the junction of of uh, Clarkamore Road and Rosebury Avenue and Grazing Road. And so that little corner, actually, I know very well. And actually, uh, without getting into too much of my own stuff, you know, the reason I moved there was was purely psychological because I loved that part. I had a connection with that part of the city. Uh, This is a long time back now, but I'd been taken... Uh, on a trip down to see the Fleet River by London, uh, by Thames Water. This is about 15 years ago, maybe longer. And um, and popped up in Clerkenwell. So I'd got a very strong connection with that part of the city. And it is a strange part of the city, the Fleet Valley, you know. And, uh, oh, yes. And quite grubby as well, you know. that's what It's not glamorous. I mean, I know people talk about Clerkenwell. I go to Clerkenwell and think, oh, where is it? Where is Clerkenwell? And it's not one of those big, grand london districts is it it's uh it is a labyrinth and i want i wonder whether you could talk a bit about that the well actually uh, robert let's just back up the truck a little bit um back give up, us a give us a sort of overview of macken's written works a sort of catalogue view Ooh. or the important ones anyway
1: the important ones okay i think arthur macken's works fall into two categories no. OK, I'm going to say three categories. Um, there's the the folk horror, um, which the most famous ones are the great God Pan, uh, the three imposters, where um, it, uh, this is at his, uh, where H.P. Lovecraft is, is sort of, um, you know, followed him most closely. And you have scary monsters. You have strange experiments with... Um, Scientists sort of re- removing part of their wives' brains and they, they go mad instantly because they, they, they see the great god Pan and you've got all kinds of weird things happening. Then you've got the London writing um, and that's that's best exemplified by his um, three um, autobiographies um, which, which sort are of, uh, just sort of dawdling, meandering wonderful recollections of him having his penniless youth in London and just his experiences of that and how, how it sort of feeds into his work. You've then got what I'd call the the spiritual works. And there, these there's, there's not a clear cut between all these. There's a wonderful, one of my favourite stories by his is sort of falls into that third category, these sort of spiritual works. Um, it's called A Fragment of Life. And it's, it's a deceptively simple, sort of slow, uh, slow burn story about this couple living, this sort of puterish couple living in um, a suburb of London who are gradually spiritually awakened. It sounds terribly dull, but it's absolutely captivating because um, they sort of discover the relationship between themselves and they sort of grow closer as a result. They start off with this fairly sort of emotionless sort of, Dull couple, and that they sort of find this, this great. Um Mystery. I think the husband sort of discovers these sort of ancient Welsh manuscripts um, bequeathed to him, and he starts sort of poring over them and discovering this sort of this glowing light. And and but there are other elements there as well because they're sort of exploring the London suburbs. There's also an element of folk horror because at one point um, something does emerge from the bushes, and it's it's rather strange and and um, unearthly. Uh, but it's at its core, there's this there's this sort of wonderful. Deep theology. So this is um, the the, uh, the the husband uh, Darnell, who reads the hidden songs of Yolosant, and he learns of the holy well hidden in the Wistman's Wood, Silver Sapientum, a water of life to them that thirst for life. He had barely tested the overrunnings of that mystic well, yet he was already aware of the enchantment that was transmuting all the world about him. London seemed a city of the Arabian nights, and its labyrinths of streets, an enchanted maze, its long avenues of lighted lamps were as starry systems, and its immensity became for him an image of the endless universe. And it's a lovely, I like it because Macken isn't so good at the sort of, um, you know, you're sort of soap opera characters he's not so good at sort of relationships and that kind of thing um i i'll i'll go out there and say he's not brilliant at writing women um they can be rather cardboard um we'll get letters i know but they can be a bit sort of um 60s doctor who they're either there as a sort of vague love interest or they're there to scream when the monster appears Uh, or sometimes they're this sort of dark mystical um this sort of um Alistair Crowley type sex object, they sort of appear with dark flowing hair and they sort of disappear into the night. So they're a bit cardboard. But here, um, the character of Mary Darlene is wonderful because there's this there's this real sort of honesty about this this sort of couple coming together and, and finding this sort of this this meaning uh, where before there was this this sort of um, dull uh, beige
0: suburban world that they <laughs> inhabited. So they woke up uh, through London. So the London labyrinth. Let's just tell us about that. I think the the
1: labyrinth is where um, the link between De Quincey and Macken is at its strongest. De Quincey writes of London as a labyrinth. Macken picks up on this theme of London as labyrinth, but he sort of takes it further, and he sort of expounds it in a sort of. Uh, religious uh, sense of a religious quest where there is a minotaur in this labyrinth who will probably kill you but if you can sort of navigate this then there are riches to be found um that and he, he takes it a bit further and of course that's the, the londoners labyrinth is the is the great theme of all the psychogeographers that follow ian sinclair um t.s elliot to an extent peter ackroyd alan moore it, it's this sense of london as this unnavigable um, impossible city.
0: Although for me it's interesting because it's at London labyrinthine for sure. But the labyrinth to me always had this sense of like there is a centre to it, and you can never quite find the centre of the city. I know there's a couple of places down in Charing Cross that say this is the centre of London, but you never quite got there, you know. And uh, the theme you mentioned earlier with Darnell—that's really the other big thing for him—is the waters. And of course, that area, the, the area Clerkenwell again, it's full of. I mentioned the fleet, you know, the lost fleet. There's so the tributaries, Bagnage wells. There's lots of wells around there, and that's a big thing for him as well, isn't it? This sort of you mentioned it, the spirituality of water.
1: The spirituality of water, yes. This is this comes out uh, hugely in the fragment of life where um, um, Darnell's, Darnell is warned um, by this this ancient text he picks up not to use the well of life as a mere luxury of mortal life, as a new sensation, as a means of making the insipid cup of everyday existence more palatable for we are not called to sit as the spectators in a theatre there to watch the play perform before us but we are rather summoned to stand in the very scene itself and there fervently to enact our parts in a great and wonderful mystery and that part of as you say is um absolutely riddled with wells rivers right under the surface so the walk um, that I did back in 2011 entitled The Grey Soul of London um, traverses all these and you've got the New River Head, there's the Fleet, of course, there's the Upper Pond, which is st- still in use as a reservoir, but they're all buried deep. You've got Clarkswell, the original Clarkswell, Skinner's Well, well Toddwell, Well, Radwell. These are all the wells that were abandoned in medieval times as they begin to be contaminated from... London's burial grounds and cesspools and then you've got these wonderful 18th century wells and spas you've got Sadler's Wells the new Tunbridge Wells the London Spa the new wells the cold bath Wells Black Mary's Hole so the whole of this area is is bursting with water but as you walk around it there's nothing there's absolutely no water left it's 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 dry as a bone we don't you don't see any water um so it, it, it seems of a piece to talk about this um you know, water in the in the more mystical sense of having to use your imagination to sort of get under the get under the skin of London. I mean, I think that's the, that's the real attraction of you know everyone's fascinated with a lost river of London. You know, there's just it, it, I think it's the most sort of popular video on the on the on, the, on sort of Londonist's YouTube channel is, is is searching the those rivers because there's something very sort of uh, very deep and mystical about them that um, that seems to promise great great. Uh, Great treasures, if you can find them. It's a
0: long time now since I went down the fleet, um, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to claim, you know, I was ahead of the curve there. But it was, it was less popular at that time. I don't think you can, you can probably, even, probably even do tours down there uh, these days. I had to lie to get down there. I actually told Thames Water I was a Sunday Times journalist, and they, um, <laughs> they, they eventually uh, caved in, and, and uh, I got a message in the answer machine saying you can go down uh, the fleet sewer as they call it, uh, but you have to be at Hackney Wick pumping station at five o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, and I was so excited that I actually set off and I walked there. Oh. I set off at about one, I think, or something like that. It took me four hours something to walk over there. Uh, and I was taken down by a gang of sewer men and uh, driven down to um, the north end of Blackfriars Bridge, And then they, which was different than it is now. There was a roundabout there. And they parked up and... Uh, Got tools out We all got kitted up. I've got some photographs in in yellow rubber. It was a bit like going to an S and M club and waders and strange clubs. And uh, we went down and uh, and I, I spent um, I don't know how long I was down there, but uh, fascinating time with those guys. Lots of stories from that. Uh, including asking them, you know, they were they were all older men, and of course, one of the issues was at that time that there was a sort of there was the knowledge of the sewers c- could not be fully mapped. They but they knew it, but the problem that they had was, I think, the youngest of them was about forty-eight. Thames Water and their wisdom were not taking on any new apprentices, so the the knowledge was not being passed on. So the kind of the recesses and distant. Uh, caves of the suey system, which were only known, you know, by these guys, uh, the, the knowledge of it was getting lost. I could talk about that for hours, but the most interesting thing, of course, was sitting in their van afterwards with them, smoking and drinking tea and asking them, so what is the scariest thing that you've seen down there? And I'll tell you about that. what that is some of the time, and it wasn't anything to do with rats. Um, but you're right, it's become a, uh, a fascinating thing, and I think that, interestingly, there is something about the metaphor that... You can pollute a river, you can concrete over a river, but you can't actually get rid of it. There's some, it feels somehow significant, maybe about psychic processes or something. And maybe that's what Macken was in some way connecting with this notion of, uh, you know, buried impulses and buried springs, you know, and uh, the, the sort I'm of psychic fluid that is kind of still coursing beneath the surface of our civilised skin Absolutely, but it's also,
1: I think, about the, the you know, the, 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 excitement of the sewers is about seeing London from a completely different angle, and you might sort of, um, it, it breaks you out of your sort of, um, your, your comfort zone of um, going to, you know, going to work and coming home, and going to work and coming home, and perhaps going to the pub, and you, you sort of inhabit this sort of, this, this sort of small route, but then suddenly there's an opportunity is presented. In you know, a different door that has never been there before. One of my, um, what, 95, I was living in Dalston in a cheese factory um, that abuts the um, what is now the overground railway. At the time, the railway was derelict. There was no tracks there, and you could quite easily sort of break in onto the through the wall onto the tracks and sort of walk from Dalston al- along the sort of the old um, track bed right into what used to be. Uh, Broad Street Station. So we, you know, we, we did this and it was quite a, it was a very surreal experience to sort of walk through these ghostly stations and uh, completely overgrown um, sort of traipse over the girders, slightly crazily risking our lives, walking over the sort of bridges um, over the canals where, you know, there's, they're really only hopping from girder to girder um, and seeing London. As if from a secret way, and that's the only time I think I saw a ghost. Um, not actually on the route, um, but we came back and um, we, we went to the pub. And then, then my 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 sort of uh, cheese factory mate, um, I was living with. He said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and uh, with with a guy that's staying with us, but let's let's walk along the railway again." And um, so I watched them from the window. And um, in the morning um i said to him over breakfast um did you have fun and who was the third guy that went with you and he looked a bit pale and he said no there's just me and this other chap simon I said no i i'm i'm sure i saw three of you climbing over and walking down this thing and he he looked very ashen at that point so that might have been the only ghost i've ever seen
0: There is another bit. I just wanted to, if you'll let me, I wanted to read a bit of Macken, which you've highlighted here, um, Robert. It's from um, Far Off Things, I think. Right. And it says this. It's at the other other end of uh, London uh, from Clerkenwell, Turnham Green. And he says, uh, I used to spend the hour in the middle of the day and wandering about Turnham Green and the waste places around Gunnersbury. Well, we all know that still lots of waste places round Gunnersbury. Making my meal on a large captain's biscuit and a glass of beer, I varied this repast by taking it in various public houses. In those days, there were still pleasing and ancient taverns scattered along those western roads. One I remember in particular—a very old tumble-down house set at the edge of market gardens, which then approached almost a Turnham Green. Not a straight line about this old old house; its roof tree, roof tree dipped and wavered, and. The roof was of mellowed tiles, and one end of the place was overwhelmed by a huge billow of ivy. I used to think that highwaymen must have lurked in the little room where I took my biscuit and glass of ale, and the food and drink tasted so much better on that account. The old tavern and its leaning sheds and ragged outbuildings, its red roof and its green ivy, all gone long ago. There is a row of raw houses where it stood, and I hate them. Sometimes I didn't have any beer, either because I didn't want any, or because it struck me as too great a luxury. Then I would buy a small bag of currant biscuits and take them to the region of the market gardens and devour them, sitting on a gate or sheltering behind a hedge. These feasts are always connected in my mind with the grey and gloomy sky and a very cold wind so that I shiver when I think of flat, square biscuits in which currants are embedded. I'm never going to think about currant biscuits again in the same light after after that. I don't know about you. It is wonderful, isn't it? It makes you want to just take a packet of currant
1: biscuits and sit somewhere cold and feel miserable it's wonderful isn't it it's just it's just it invites you to it it, there's a sort of there is a sort of there is a lot of nostalgia i think in, in in macken's writing which is just a joy to read i think it's dangerous um and it's something i kind of guard against in you know my own sort of writing and thinking about london because you can you can easily get swept up into these sort of wonderful pictures of of old, oldy London and how it used to be and how everything must have been great fun then. And I think you can start to get fixated on that. It's very conservative um, with a small C and a large C, I think. It, you you sort of get tied up in wanting to preserve everything for the sake of it and not recognising that actually progress has been made. The the, the most recent walk um, I did before lockdown um the pantheon of pancras is all around the sort of the new well old and new st pancras and particularly the sort of huge development um into the to the rear of king's cross station um which i have to say i think is wonderful it's a it's, it's a it's a great place um and londoners need homes to live in they need affordable homes to live in they need more homes i think in doing that you've got to respect the heritage of a place you've got to bring it to life and you've got to interact with it and absolutely that you don't want to be sort of um raising everything to the ground and starting again but i i, I do get a bit uncomfortable with some of the aspects of psychogeography which just to me seem to be nostalgia for this 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 rather sort of um rain-sodden, derelict London, which is beautiful and enchanting, but you've got to, you've got, people have got to live.
0: Absolutely. there is. We came up with this uh, word, uh, it's it's an ugly word, but nevertheless, it's Soholja, which is the uh, sort of nostalgia for Soho, because um, talking to people of all ages, actually, there seems to be a common experience, a little bit different for you because you were born here, but I think nearly everybody's come to London remembers Soho more fondly than it is now, their experience of it is now. It's nearly always because they remember Soho when they came to London and they were young and they had a very exciting time there. So I think this has been going on since the 30s, 40s, 50s. You know, writers have been talking about how Soho used to be much better than it is now. Still going on, there's the Save Soho Society and Soho's being ruined and all that sort of stuff. It was interesting for me because we, we interviewed Norman Ballon, you know the infamous, the worst landlord in in London of the Coach and Horses. You know the archetypal Soho pub, uh, and he, he he retired a few years ago. But we managed to interview him, and um, you know, he was asked about this thing about oh, all Soho's, you know, old Soho's going, and you know it's not the same as it was, and uh, when Francis Bacon was around, or whatever and he, he was completely dismissive of that attitude and this is somebody who'd been there all his life you know and he was like no no it's it's a city it's got to change you know soho has always been changed london's always been changed change cities themselves are processes in in you know and they're transforming all the time and there is a sort of fake about getting attached to some version of the past when it probably wasn't even really like that in some way, you know, or, it, or if it was there was a lot of other horrible things about it which needed to change and you're right, I mean we need to kind of respect certain things just because they've, they're wonderful but it would be a shame, wouldn't it, if we sort of froze it in aspic Absolutely, um, and, it's,
1: and it's but I think that's that's for me, that's the that's the real pleasure, enjoyment and importance of engaging with history and with London history is to sort of understand the present better. There's um, we just um, well, I've written a new walk uh, called Drury Lane, which is strangely along Drury Lane, um, which uh, we'll will launch as soon as as soon as government guidelines permit us to, and we can we can again sort of embrace and and, and clink glasses physically. Um, but it starts off um, at the north end of Drury Lane, St Giles, which was of course the place where the Great Plague started. Um, it was the focus of it, and I started writing this earlier in the year. And at that point, it was history, and I thought well, I need to say a few words about plague. But everyone kind of knows the story, and of course, suddenly it's horribly relevant, and you start looking back at Daniel Defoe and and thinking this is not four hundred years ago. This is well, it's not four hundred years ago; it's three hundred and something years ago. But it's it's happening. It's real, and it's it's actually good. Lord, look at what we're doing. We are. Most of us are repeating all the all the mistakes that, that, that everyone made in sixteen sixty five and goodness me, London hasn't changed. And you start thinking perhaps perhaps Peter Ackroyd's right and we're all just trapped in this sort of moment in in time
0: and going round and only only Doctor Who can save us. <laughs> Destined to repeat the same mistakes from the past time and time again as we walked down those streets. Um Robert, we're gonna we're drawing to a close here, but I just wanted to kind of loop us back to Arthur Macken and the counterculture and um, you know the people that you mentioned earlier. The uh, you know, um, you know who who you said he's influenced. They they were conscious of that, were they? They described him as as uh, as did they? Um, of of the time, yes. So I think H.P.
1: Lovecraft, you know, was aware of of what he was doing. Um, a, a, a few others that are sort of more famous sort of came a little bit after him. So lewis Borg is... Um, was slightly after him. I'm not sure. I don't think they knew each other, but, but certainly Borges was, um, you know, named him as one of the, the the great influences of him, and everyone else has sort of come after. Obviously, Guillermo del Toro is is, is much later. Um, Stuart Lee, um, the 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 Sublime. Um, stand-up comedian. I think he describes himself as the, the, the uh, UK's 41st best stand-up comedian on his website. He's got a wonderful article if you just Google Stuart Lee Arthur Macken, he's got a great article um, on the influences of Arthur Macken, so he sort of traces all these, it's, 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 it's well worth a read.
0: Very good indeed. So for a beginner, for a primer where would you recommend that somebody would start? What's, what's the best way to start with the phenomena that's known as Arthur Macken? The phenomena of Arthur Macken. Well, you've got to
1: dive in, I think. Um, and if you let's see, okay, so I'm going to recommend three books, shall we do? If if you are, um, if if folk horror is your thing, then you you could do worse than starting off with the the three imposters, which is a, it's a novel, but really it's a sort of a loosely connected collection of short stories, um. But it, it it it's wonderful. It, it it sort of goes into some 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 great um uh, terrifying and weird moments. If you're a London fan um and you want to read about his his sort of take on London, I'd start with the second of his autobiography, which is called Far Off Things. Um it's in and out of print, but there's there is a um a, a, a Welsh publisher Called the Three Imposters. That's brought out some wonderful um, new editions of his work. So check out the Three Imposters, and they've they've got some you can get them from them. Um, And then if you are of more of a spiritual bent and want to explore that, I want to mention Sir John Betjeman is um, another famous. um, a person who was influenced by Arthur Macken, and in fact, on the spiritual side, he, you know, he sort of—I think he converted. I think the story goes he converted back to Anglicanism or, or to Anglicanism on the influence of Macken. So that's your—that's your thing. I—I—I'd look at the, a fragment of life, and again, you can find that in print. I think it, a lot of his stories are online, so you can—you can, of course, find a lot of his stories online, and in—and in audiobooks, of course, there are some great audiobooks out there to. Uh, Absorb yourself in.
0: Robert, thank you so much. And uh, what about you and Minimum Labyrinth? Let's give people a, um, a route to you. A route to us. Um,
1: well, if you wait outside uh, the pumping station at 5 a.m., <laughs> I'll meet you there and um, I'll take you underground. Or um, you can go to Minimum it. Lab- let me say it again. You can go to Minimum Labyrinth.org. And a whole world of wonders um, will, will await you. Hopefully, once once we're allowed to, we'll get back into uh, doing some walks around London. And um, come hopefully, come uh, January, we'll be redoing our coach trip to Rendlesham Forest to investigate the strange events of the 1980 UFO sighting, which we did um, in, in December last year. It was a great success, so hopefully we'll... Um, Social distancing will allow us to do that once more. There's always a risk of abduction, of course, and government
0: experiments, but you you have to sign a waiver before you get on the coach. Well, I think we might have to get you back to talk all about the strange Rendlesham affair. (laughs) But that is it for today. So, first of all, thank you so much, Robert, for leading us through the labyrinth. Thank you, Stephen. So find out more about Minimum Labyrinth and Robert, as he mentioned. I'll put the link in the show notes. You can find out more about us at bureauoflostculture.com. We'll be back next time to take another strange turning down some of the alleyways and dark passages of the labyrinth. That is the counterculture. Thank you for listening. I was Stephen Coates. See you next time.